Hello, magical humans. We are live from Wadi Ram. This is Five and Nine, the podcast at the crossroads of magic, work, and economic justice. Welcome to season four, episode eight. Where did water come from? All the water on the earth is all that we have. from oceans into the clouds above us. It shifts into ice, but there is neither more water nor less water. It seems that water came from asteroids or comets, most likely. Early in our planet's history, they crashed onto the land, leaving one of the key ingredients for life as we know it. The more I study time, the more it feels like our time on Earth is made possible by a series of collisions and eruptions. Crises that mark the end of one cycle also enable the beginning of another. A supernova imploded, sending debris into our proto-solar system that helped form the planets. The Earth slammed into another planet, which helped form the Moon. A massive volcano erupted to wipe out life as we knew it, and the dinosaurs rose soon thereafter. An asteroid hit the Yucatan Peninsula, creating a dust cloud that killed off the dinosaurs and allowed mammals to rise. And then, millions of years later, the Rift Valley began opening up, a rift so massive that it began shaping the Earth's climate cycles. It's under these conditions that humans began to emerge. We lived there for thousands of years, until we started wandering outward. We're coming close to the end of season four with a podcast that reflects on the nature of time, symbolic language, water, change. Towards the end of the residency, I sat down with Adele Lin. My name is Adele Lin. I'm an artist, technologist, creator, producer, a friend, facilitator. I love the really real and I love the mystical Mm. and the in-between and the unknowns and your, your framing around crisis has, in a way, really helped me think about my work, and I realized that I do make work around crisis or trying to help myself and others understand a crisis. Mm-hmm. Some are more personal, like uh, women's rights, discrimination, racial justice, and some are about the environment, like extraction. And we've been here really exploring and getting deep into the understanding of water and the current crisis of water, the historical context of water, and to me it's really felt like the crisis of water is also a crisis of people, like most of the crises that are created by us. Uh, My intention coming here was to get more in touch with some of my ancestry, the parts that I don't know so well, and bringing some of the parts that I I grew up with and trying to harmonize them. Mm-hmm. In a way, and uh, yeah, being on on these lands and having some of the waters here has been yeah really incredible, and has allowed me to connect with a surprising group of people. One thing you mentioned is the number of crises you're looking at, and there's a word there are words that float around to describe this moment in time that we're in. It's a kind of poly crisis. In fact, the multiple crises are intersecting. There's perma crisis, the sense that there's never quite a break tensions and the concerns and I'm curious how how do you how do you hold all of these things that you're exploring 
all of these difficulties. You, you mentioned water, racial justice, women's rights, environment. That's a lot to, to carry emotionally. And what does that, how does that feel? How do you manage that? How do you work with that as an artist? It's a really good question. I think part of figuring out how to hold it has, um, and kind of feeling the, the futileness of, of it all, especially during COVID, you know, when we couldn't really do anything and literally all we could do was sit there and feel the permacrisis mm. crises. I think the only way for me to work through it is to, to make art or to respond to it in a, a creative way or a, just even, you know, in a kind of like personal response mm. to release some of that. And hopefully through the work, through the actions and even the conversations that it leads to helps me feel like I'm moving some steps forward mm. or just like learning about things that I didn't know and able to bring that into my daily life. And I try to bring light into it. I, I try to be playful, sometimes absurd. So I came to Wadi Ram with a 160-foot long scroll, mm. some ink, some large brushes made out of different animal hairs and a few dictionaries and poems so part of it was languages that i know and part of it were languages that i didn't but what they all had in common was calligraphy so as a child growing up i went to school and we um, learned to write um, chinese characters mm -hmm. through calligraphy and it was a very grueling process where we would just be writing pages and pages and pages and at the time, it just felt tedious, and I found a lot of things coming back, like how the language is constructed, looking deeply into words and finding new meaning in them. Mm. I'm also Jewish, but from, um, from Iraq. My family from there had moved through India and ended up in Singapore. You know, I really kind of wanted to reconnect with that, and we're like almost right next to all of these lands, and so I thought it would be a great opportunity to try to learn some Arabic and a little bit of Hebrew. And for me, it's been very difficult because I have so many of the others uh, in me, and that kind of started maybe two generations ago, where my family started having mixed marriages on my mother's side. Yeah, my grandfather was Iraqi, and my grandmother was from China, and there was kind of discrimination already within that, which um, then my mother, who's from Singapore, and then she married someone from Malaysia, and she was considered different, and so she got discriminated against. And so we kind of grew up just not knowing where we fit and having to embrace all and be embraced by none. And so you're expected to, to know every everything about the cultures that you're part of, and often like each of these cultures might individually reject you because... There's something different about you. Oh. I thought it would be a great opportunity to try to learn some Arabic and a little bit of Hebrew. Mm. I feel like I couldn't have found more different languages to kind of put side by side. And then the intent was to kind of weave all the words together and kind of create a river that would flow through the desert. And just thinking about like, what better place to write about water than being in a place with so little right. where every drop counts. Uh, yeah, after writing for two two days, two and a half days, we found uh, a slope, a hill that uh, was covered in rock and sand and climbed up to the top and unrolled the scroll and let it flow down the side of the hill. Hmm. How did that feel to run, unroll a 160-foot <laughs> scroll down this massive hill? <laughs> Terrifying. <laughs> hmm. I was watching it mostly from, from above 
Mm-hmm. But I saw some photos from a distance and it really looked just like a little stream trickling through. And it was really incredible to see. So I was pouring sand on it as mm-hmm. we went down. And uh, Hannah, my guide, was helping me. And so we were putting rocks and sand on the paper as we went down. But the parts that rolled just caught the wind. And we were like, threw our bodies onto the scroll, like right. holding it down. And <laughs> that was really funny. And it was, uh, yeah, a really good bonding experience, too. Yeah. When the stresses of climate on the Rift Valley became too strong, Homo sapiens needed to adapt. One of our first stops would have been Wadi Rum, a desert deep in the Rift Valley. It's a place where time moves differently, where the layers of the earth show through in its magnificent mountains and the sand beneath our feet. We learn to work together, we learn to cooperate, we develop new technologies, and we developed symbolic language. Symbolic thought is still at the heart of our work. Every time we draw tarot cards, we work with symbols, images, myths, and legends. And every time we write, every time we speak, Every time you listen to this podcast, we're using language to tell the story of the world around us. Do you have any examples of some of the words and phrases or surprises as you're preparing the scroll? I find both Arabic and Chinese, right, they're, they're so poetic mm-hmm. based, um, in their meanings and, and culturally, too. I think both kind of both groups who use these languages have placed high value on poetry, at least my understanding. I guess like the, the starting point that I used to explore uh, the Chinese language looking for words that had the elements of water in it. Okay. And then for Arabic, you have alphabets. But they're very hard to read as alphabets because they're all connected together. Actually, kind of a nice analogy of of humans. Mm -hmm. We are like independent beings, but then when we try to connect with others, we might shift our orientations and... Uh, we're right. going to reach out. That's actually a nice way to think about it. And then some of the surprises, I think, for the, the languages themselves. Uh, one of the words that I, I thought for Chinese that was really interesting was the character for way, the way, um, or law. It's made out of two characters, water and the character for leave or go. Oh. And so I think it's like the way water leaves, that's the way. And so, you know, follow the water. And uh, so we wrote that in Chinese and then also in Arabic. And then a lot of the characters in Chinese are very descriptive. So the character for continent is made out of um, the character water. And the character for state and country is made out of three dots separated by three lines, which kind of looks like borders or mm. where you kind of mark territories and then uh, the waters surrounds those territories and that becomes a continent wow. um, so yeah it was really nice to kind of just take that time to look at the words and try to understand yeah, some of the wisdoms that were encoded in it what did you learn about crisis navigating crisis and looking at these languages um, these old languages mm. um, maybe ancient languages yeah yeah I, I, I love language and I love calligraphy when I studied Mandarin. My my teacher was very disappointed in everything I did, except for my writing. He said, he said you write beautifully. Aww. Because I loved, I loved calligraphy. And I remember studying Western calligraphy as well, you know, got the pen and the nib. Mm. And exactly what you said, like, you know, the letters change when they're in cursive form. 
and the way they connect and flow, it starts to look like a different sort of written language. And I've really been enjoying puzzling through Arabic here and like learning, learning the letters, learning how they connect and how they flow. And I find language, it's, it's so grounding for me. It's very poetic. It connects me with long-ago pasts as well, mm. long-ago logics. I'm curious what, yeah, what doing this project brought up for you as you thought about water crisis or just living with crisis. I found a lot of metaphors around water, looking at some of the poetry. I didn't have a, a lot of extensive study time. and Water becomes a metaphor for a lot of different things. Water is used for everything from literal water, drinking water, running water to different forms. It comes in like the rain, the seas, rivers, and reflection is a really big one in poetry and how it um, cuts through the earth and also kind of just used a lot of times to describe a woman, which then is also an analogy for homelands. And just at least with the sort of like two poems that I ended up kind of using to for the final piece, I interlude an old Chinese poem kind of about an autumn meditation and like the 700s, and then uh, an old Jahili poem, Arabic poem, like Jordanian poem, actually. The Chinese poem kind of referenced a lot, like the Chinese poems kind of just had a lot of water in them as just some, like almost something that's just so abundant and that's there. The uh, Arabic poetry seemed to talk a lot about the absence of water, and they seem to be a lot more emotional. Mm. In a way, there are references to like crying and tears and being driven from the lands because of needing to seek water. And I feel like that's happening a lot right now. And uh, people are driven from their lands in the same way. But it's much harder to leave your lands these days because of borders and passports and, and stuff like that. I think one thing I appreciate about these old poems is that reflection of the importance of water in a way that I think for a lot of folks in, we'll say, modern industrialized life, water just is just this thing you just turn a faucet and it just flows. Whereas in many ways, I feel like this moment that we're in, in history and time, is a reflection and a remembrance that nature is not this thing where you just press a button and shows up. It's, it's a resource. It's precious. It's limited. And it can shape lives. And there are millions of people who, of course, live this reality and have had to migrate and move. And I think there's just, there seems to be greater awareness, at least, um, of these dynamics, that nature is a finite living element that needs to be respected and not just extracted. People are willing to do all kinds of harm and things for, for water. And I hope they can do all kinds of good things too and be more fluid like water and be more be more giving. I ultimately hope we can melt some of these borders which are yeah, so arbitrary. That's the other thing I've really learned a lot on this trip is just how arbitrary borders are. And yeah, every time you think back to maps and even especially China and all the dynasties, all they were doing were carving up lands and shifting borders around and, and yeah, the West has done that here and we need to be more flexible around that and we need to share our resources and work together to make them last longer. Five and Nine is an independent podcast at the crossroads of magic, work, and economic justice. The music was recorded live and performed by Hashim bin Muatik. Find us at thisis5and9.com on Apple, Spotify, Google, and anywhere you listen to podcasts.